Linda Billings is Manager of Communications in the NASA Astrobiology Program. She's worked for more than 30 years in Washington, D.C. as a researcher, journalist, freelance writer, communications planner, policy analyst, and consultant to the government. As a researcher, she has worked on communication strategy, media analysis, and audience research for NASA's astrobiology, Mars exploration, and planetary protection programs. She was the first senior editor for space at Air and Space Smithsonian Magazine and the founding editor of Space Business News. Her freelance articles have been published in outlets such as the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, and Space News. Dr. Billings was here at CTI to participate in our recent winter symposium, and near the end of those proceedings, we sat down for a conversation, which you're about to hear. So I'm here with Linda Billings on the Fresh Thinking Podcast. Linda is a consultant for the NASA Astrobiology Program. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you talk a bit about sort of what brought you here to CTI for this symposium we've had the last three days, which has involved a number of astrobiologists, theologians, literary scholars, playwrights, and so on, and, and what you got out of the three days? It's been a fascinating two and a half days, and I was really glad to be able to make it. I was involved in the beginning uh, in consultation with Mary Wojtek, the senior scientist for astrobiology at NASA, in uh, conceiving this program, which she and Will Storar uh, did together. And I remember reviewing the proposal. We had um, a few talks with Will about what this project could be and could mm-hmm. do. And it's been really interesting to see it come to fruition. Uh, This is the first opportunity I've had to uh, drop into the inquiry. And that's exactly what it felt like on Monday morning that I had parachuted into the middle of a rapidly flowing stream of conversation. Uh, But the conversation has been vigorous and stimulating. And uh, I've taken a lot of notes a lot of notes to myself, a lot of notes about uh, books to read and people to follow up with and papers to send out. It's, it's been uh, really wonderful, and I wish I could have been a part of the whole experience, although I realize that's quite time-consuming. Was there anything you, that surprised you about it or that you didn't expect, or was the conversation sort of what you had thought it might be? I didn't have any particular expectations. I had, of course, read about the members of the inquiry who I had not uh, met before. I knew a little bit about Frank Rosenzweig already and listened to his podcast. In fact, I've listened to pretty much all of your uh, podcasts associated with this inquiry. And I was really interested to see how having two guests who are authors, uh, Andrea Hairston, the playwright and novelist, and Mary Doria Russell, the novelist, uh, their perspective on what literature offers to science and theology, and also particularly this morning's discussion about the structure and purpose of narratives. Uh, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised at, at how responsive the members of the inquiry were to the presence of these two writers, and I was particularly fascinated, and I I told Mary Doria Russell um, about this um, at the end of the day yesterday. I said, this is the first time in my life where I've been able to listen to an author over the course of two days explain the process of conceiving of a novel and writing it and creating the characters, that whole process of, of how the book, about how her narrative 
unfolded for her and how, how much of it was a conscious effort on her part and at some point where she was making conscious decisions to take her narrative in certain directions. As, as she said, her characters told her, no, we're not going there. It was absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've listened to many, many talks on radio and television uh, with authors about how they wrote their books. This was the first time I really got an in-depth, very personal, very individualistic um, take on how a book comes to pass. And I have read The Sparrow, but I bought another copy today so I can read it again, um, and I will read Children of God. Did you get a chance to talk with her about The Sparrow, just one-on-one at all? I can't remember how many years ago I read the book probably somewhere between five to seven years ago. I think I read it because she was supposed to speak at a meeting of the American Association of Advancement of Sciences Dialogue on Science and Religion. And I went to that talk, but she was not able to make it for, there were travel problems, I believe. I was disappointed. That might have been at the point where I decided I was going to read the book. Or one of my friends in the astrobiology community said, you have to read this book. I know it wasn't any other option. It was one of those two options. And so I had quite a vague memory of the structure of the book. I remember the punch in the gut part of the book. I'll never forget that, the punch in the gut uh, element of the book. But um, others, the members of the inquiry, were much more informed about the details of the book. And so it was enough for me to simply sit and and listen to all the questions uh, from the members to her. And she was just wonderfully responsive to all of these questions with uh, lots and lots of details. So um, because of that vague memory, uh, I said, well, I'll just sit here and listen, and I'll read the book again now that I've had the benefit. It's going to be a completely different experience to read the book a second time with all this knowledge and information and new perspectives that I've collected here over the past two and a half days. Now, how did you get interested in astrobiology? Does this go back a long way? Um, It goes back quite a ways. Mm -hmm. It it goes back before the capital A astrobiology program was organized at NASA. Um, I was working as a senior editor for space at um, Air and Space Smithsonian Magazine and was recruited to work with what was then the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence program at NASA. Uh, And the program, this was around 1988, was about halfway through a 10-year development period to the launch of the actual search. And um, John Rummel, who was was at the time the senior scientist uh, for the SETI program at NASA, um, I had gotten to know him through various contacts in the space community, and he um, recruited me to come to work with the program. And we worked on communication and advocacy planning. And at that time, I believe that the SETI program was an element of the exobiology research program at NASA, which was officially established in 1960 and funded research into the origin, evolution, and distribution of life in the universe. Uh, By 1996, exobiology had not exactly morphed because exobiology still exists as a subset of the astrobiology program, but Dan Golden, who was in 1996 administrator of NASA, decided that biology was becoming a bigger and bigger deal 
in the world of science. And also, we were entering the era of extrasolar planet searching, and uh, Dan Golden was the person who made a decision that we needed to really expand exobiology to more broadly encompass the search for extrasolar planets, so the search for extraterrestrial life within our own solar system and perhaps in other uh, stellar systems. And um, I took a break from 1996 to 1999 to go back to school and get my PhD. And when I came back to Washington, uh, John Rummel was still at NASA and so brought me back to work with him on the planetary, planetary protection program. He was planetary protection officer at that time. And um, when uh, the current senior scientist for astrobiology left NASA headquarters. Dr. Rummel was asked to take on that position, and he said to me, you're coming with me because I'm not doing this by myself. So I have a pretty long history with astrobiology before it became astrobiology. Right. Can you tell a bit about exactly what planetary protection is? Planetary protection is pretty closely related to astrobiology. It's the NASA's planetary protection policy is mandatory and it's a, a, a product of NASA's commitment to comply with a provision of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, the United Nations Outer Space Treaty, which requires that spacefaring nations, signatories to the treaty, um, ensure that they do not transport terrestrial biological contamination to extraterrestrial environments and and in the event that we are returning samples from potentially habitable planetary bodies, that we not bring back extraterrestrial biological contamination to the terrestrial environment. The, the idea in the treaty language is that we need not only to protect Earth, but to preserve pristine extraterrestrial environments for scientific research. Uh, and over the past 10 or 15 years, the international scientific dialogue about planetary protection has expanded to consider ethical considerations. Do we have ethical or moral obligations to ensure that we do not do any damage to possible extraterrestrial life? This is a very interesting uh, area for me. Philosophy and ethics are not my strongest suit. I'm a social scientist by training myself, but consequently planetary protection uh, overlaps with astrobiology and that astrobiology is trying to determine what habitats in our solar system could harbor life. And we're looking right now primarily at Mars, Enceladus, Europa, and Titan. Uh, although it seems that the more we look at planets and planetary bodies in our own system, uh, the more we find hints, if not evidence, of subsurface oceans even on a dwarf planet like Pluto. And uh, so the, the, the challenge of planetary protection as we move further out into the solar system becomes more difficult because environments that say 20 years ago were assumed to be inert um, are now looking much more interesting. What do you see as the big questions of astrobiology? What gets you most excited about the field and gets you to want to talk to others about it? The big question, of course, is are we it? And from a scientific perspective, the, the question is whether life in our solar system began only once 
or if there was, and I'm always uncomfortable using the word genesis, but a second genesis, a second origin. And then there's this whole discussion about even if we find evidence of extant microbial life or extinct microbial life on Mars, did it start on Mars? Because there's been this tremendous exchange of materials between Earth and Mars, uh, more from Mars to Earth and vice versa because Earth is bigger than Mars and it has to do with gravitational forces but it could be extremely challenging to determine if we should find such evidence that that life originated on Mars or did it originate on Earth, or did Earth life originate on Mars. Now, when we talk about exploring environments in the outer planets, Europa is our favorite uh, target right now because we know it has a, a very deep subsurface liquid water uh, ocean with very likely internal heating. This would most certainly be a second genesis because... Uh, of the placement, the location of the planets. So that's, of course, the biggest deal. Uh, perhaps the second biggest deal in astrobiology right now is the ongoing attempt to identify what we call biosignatures. Some people call them biohints. But a biosignature would be some kind of indicator that would be a certain signal that life is happening in a particular environment. This is a really, really difficult challenge uh, to meet. So it's, there are more and more scientists getting involved in this process. The National Academy of Sciences ran a workshop for NASA in December uh, with um, an amazing collection of experts to address this challenge. We don't have a report out of that workshop yet, but it will be coming soon. So those are two top things. And actually, I learned um, listening to your podcast with Eric Smith uh, about a consensus. I did not realize I understood a lot of work was being done on serpentinization, this geological process of interaction of rock and water. And Eric said, this is a consensus that in, on any rocky planetary body, this serpentinization process would be a really important process to look for evidence of because it plays a key role in life processes. Well, thanks for being here for these three days. I know you added a lot uh, to the conversation and also for joining uh, me on the podcast. Thank you, Josh.